This is Fundraising Radio and today is a special day. First of all, it's the day that the number of Fundraising Radio's listeners went over 4,000. And secondly, it's the day that I'm releasing this 100th episode of this podcast. And for this special occasion, I decided to bring a special guest, Mark Crawford, investor at Stanley Ventures and Intel Capital, both of which are very large corporate venture funds. So in this episode, we'll talk about corporate venture capital. How is corporate venture capital different from an ordinary venture capital? Who should consider raising money from a corporate venture capital versus a regular VC? And closer to the end of this episode, we'll talk about government-sponsored venture capitals and how they work which is a very, very interesting topic. So listen to the end. And by the way, uh, the few episodes following this one will be about corporate venture capitals as well. So if you want to know more about this topic, follow Fundraising Radio and stay tuned. So Mark, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Stanley Ventures. Sure. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So let me tell you a little bit of how I got involved in the asset class. So, uh, I'm a 20-year veteran. Um, I got into the venture capital, venture capital asset clad in the early 2000s. So uh, I sold the business to a large financial service company, and I was looking for what's next. Uh, it is so long ago that I actually put out a paper resume. So uh, I had a list of business cards, and uh, I was uh, always wanted to sit on the other side of the table. So I got a bunch of bond paper from uh, – from Staples and sent out a, a bunch of resumes, not really understanding what venture capital is as an asset class and, and what th- those guys did. Um, I just knew they wrote checks to uh, uh, early stage businesses to help them scale. So uh, uh, one of those letters was, was actually uh, responded to and off I went. So I started as an associate in the early 2000s and worked my way up. Uh, so I've been an associate, I've been a VP, I've been a, a director. Uh, I've raised uh, my own fund uh, twice and uh, successfully exited that, one in a secondary transaction, and one of the funds is, is still going. And then I jumped into, as you mentioned, Intel Capital. Give you a little background on Intel Capital. Uh, one of the world's leading CVCs. So... Uh, my practice back at, at Intel, we typically invested between 300 and $500 million per year. Oh, wow. So, so very, very large, absolutely. Um, some of the investment themes and thesis that we pursued uh, are, are all tech from a vertical perspective, but really aligned to the silicon. So what's going on in Intel, as this goes on to many CVCs, is they use the, the investment practice as a pathfinding mechanism. So uh, Intel was looking to diversify uh, and move away from the silicone. If you don't know, uh, chips and chipsets are quickly becoming commoditized. What you also have is, is tech companies, which are obviously uh, uh, some of Intel's largest customers producing their own chipsets that are optimized to their product, i.e. Apple will produce a chipset that goes into their iPhones. Um, with that kind of technological trends upon us and upon Intel, um, they are they are moving on to what's next. Uh, mm-hmm. And that sort of brings us up to, to what I do at Stanley Ventures. So I was charged with uh, reopening their West Coast practice. Um, I had 
board. I, I have four partners that sit in uh, other parts of the world, but they really had no representation out here where I think it's the epicenter of, of, of startups and venture capital uh, here in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So my practice here is, as I mentioned, very, very strategic, and it's the focusing on uh, diversifying Stanley, Stanley Black & Decker, the large, uh, prior to working here, uh, the large tool company, uh, diversifying some of their product offerings. So um, I invest in, 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 in startups of all types with a particular focus on, number one, disrupting the construction trade, whether that be uh, bidding, payments, uh, 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 the beginning pulling permit, logistics, supply chain, um, on-the-job performance, efficiency, and effectiveness. So things such as how much of a job has been completed and tying that back to, as I mentioned, the logistics and payments. And then also uh, uh, monitoring the assets. So after a structure is built, um, how to run that efficiently and effectively in a cost-efficient manager manner to, to actually continue to make money. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, it sounds like you have a very, very big and impressive background. And I want to go step by step because some people probably don't even know what CVC is. It's a corporate venture capital. So let's start with that. How is corporate venture capital different from a regular venture capital? Because you've been on both sides of that. And can you just give me like some major differences between those two? Sure. Let me start out as uh, the first point that, that should be understood is that a majority of corporate venture capital funds invest from the balance sheet, meaning they're a line item in the budget on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. It could be a really, really large number like Intel Capital or it could be a smaller number, but it's from the balance sheet. Um, so uh, the good and bad of that, the good is that uh, these large corporations that, that have the balance sheet capacity to fund a venture capital effort, as a general rule, um, they're able to write larger checks. They're also able to be a little bit more patient in their capital because they don't have the LP consideration mm -hmm. to return capital um, in that 10-year prime frame that's associated with uh, traditional venture capital firms. Uh, the bad is that um, in turbulent times or uh, any times where uh, liquidity or any changes in the balance sheet or even a change in the management team, um, those funds tend to dry up. Mm -hmm. So uh, you sort of have to walk that, that particular balance. Also, something else to keep in mind is the majority of venture capital firms are strategic, not financial. And that's very, very important to understand what that means. Um, while certainly uh, the, the funding and, and the efforts at a CVC, they're not trying to lose money, uh, their main objective is to achieve strategic returns. And how are those strategic returns uh, achieved? Well, you know, I essentially define success as um, me investing in a startup that start and going back to the mothership in this in my particular case now stanley black and decker that startup working closely with standing black and decker to uh, uh go to market with a particular product whether it be a joint venture a rev share agreement or maybe a, a completely new product skew go together to market to go to market together and ultimately uh that 
that particular offering being so successful that Stanley in turn buys it. So that, okay. that, that's the ultimate success, and, and I think most CVCs are following that model. Um, really pathfinding, filling in gaps in the product roadmap through the partnership with the startup, or ultimately filling your, your M&A bucket. Um, putting capital from a CVC perspective in the startups allows that corporate entity to date that startup before they ultimately marry it. Right. <laughs> And I've heard some of those stories, actually, one of my speakers who got acquired by Cisco, they first got an investment from Cisco. So that's completely right. And I was wondering, how do you source your deals? So how do you find those startups that you think are good strategic investment for you? So there is twofold. Um, my particular investment practice is heavily dependent on syndicate relationships. So as I mentioned, I've been in the asset class uh, a long time, and I think that sort of speaks to my my age, uh, which is a bit to my detriment, but uh, it's a young man's game. So um, those associates that I met back in my grunt and groan days of the early 2000s are now running their own funds around the country. So uh, we certainly keep in touch and share deal flow back and forth. Um, also, there's the, the, the attending startup events. Um, coffee meetups, uh, uh, getting your name out there, speakerships, uh, doing wonderful mm -hmm. podcasts like yours. But then you have the other side of the coin is that uh, who better to know what can enhance their business unit than those business unit members or BU uh, leadership. So a lot of my deal flow comes from the business units at Stanley that I support. They know mm -hmm. what they need. They know what's out there. Essentially, they have done a wonderful job of identifying who's going to be their future competitors or where the market is going. Nice. So they provide a, a pipeline over to, of startups to the venture unit of which to explore and, and, and start to vet. That's great. That's great. And that's really interesting. And you mentioned something that somewhat caught my attention, which is meetups, coffee meetups and all those events. Uh, that's one of the frequently asked questions that I get. It's which event should I attend, you know, to find someone who can lead me to an investment or an actual investor. So what kind of meetups do you attend? Are those uh, focused on some specific industry? Are those, uh, do they even have a focus or is it just like uh, Startup Founders Meetup? So I think it's Startup Founders Meetup. And you know, the advice I always get to Startup Founders and those CEOs are that the conversations that I should have with them start before they're seeking funding. Mm -hmm. And I say that is, I have a long, almost 20-year career, I guess, yeah, 20-year career in the asset class, and I have never funded a company out of the blue. So I know mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's some misinformation out there that uh, you could send over a business plan or uh, and uh, you know, in the modern day era, and I and I remember back in those days where people used to write business plans, but now it's certainly pitch deck. <laughs> but send a pitch deck over uh, the transom uh, to a venture capitalist, and they will pick it up and suddenly find interest in it and, and move on and eventually get uh, your entity funded. Uh, I have never done that. <laughs> I don't know any any VC guy that that sort of had that cold email and essentially followed up on it. It's actually worked out 
and there's been a transaction. So that doesn't work. This is a relationship business. So uh, I'm out at the at the startup events, the coffee meetups, the talks, uh, any of those type of events, uh, pitch competitions to actually uh, develop those relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oftentimes the startup, uh, they, they, uh, obviously they're not going to work and they, they're, they're going to fizzle out. But they will establish a relationship with, with Mark Crawford or people that, that have a similar function to Mark Crawford. So on that next entity, instead of uh, uh, sending something cold, they can remind me that we've met, we've talked, uh, mm-hmm. we've actually liked each other, and uh, <laughs> uh, they can introduce uh, their new project or uh, uh, efforts. Right, right. And that's a great advice. Building relationship in advance is wonderful and super important. But there's another side of this coin. So when you build relationship early on and you know that you'll start fundraising probably in a year or so, you have to keep in touch with that person you're trying to build a relationship with. Because, you know, in a year saying like, hey, we met in 2019 when it's 2020 right now. And the guy's like, wait, what? I, I don't remember anything. So what's your advice on, you know, sustaining that relationship, but without being, without bugging a person, basically? How should they do this? So I think project updates, thought updates are, are mm-hmm. totally appropriate. Um, sending me articles that are around your business thesis are, are appropriate. Um, not appropriate is, is uh, blowing up my phone or, or texting me, uh, Uh, ad nauseum uh, uh, about what you're up to. But certainly periodic updates are appropriate. Um, Also, as I mentioned, the lifeblood of any investment practice is is, is the syndicate network and the ability to generate deal flow. I am certainly welcome and open to sharing that Rolodex, Um, Mm -hmm. but it is inappropriate for for founders to uh, essentially call any any guy in my business, any venture capitalist, and and, and ask them un, unfiltered and, and without that relationship to uh, introduce me to someone that's going to fund my startup. Right. That's another great advice from you, Mark. <laughs> we're in a good track here. So last thing that I wanted to t- cover uh, while we're talking about corporate venture capital is at which level can founders actually approach CVC? So, uh, I assume that you can't really understand if it's a good strategic, I mean, strategic investment early on. So, for example, you will not invest in pre-seed or probably even seed. So, which stage do you usually invest in? So, so Staley's a full life cycle investor, and that's one of the benefits of working with a CVC is that we're we're investing off the balance sheet. Uh, Staley's a fifteen billion dollar plus company, so uh, nice. uh, we can arrive afford to write fairly large checks as you can imagine. <laughs> right. Um, but Stanley is a little bit different in that uh, we do write those smaller checks right after uh, the friends, family, and fools round. So uh, uh, my investment practice, I've written checks as low as $250,000 to working on deals as high as $15 million. Nice. Uh, but as CVD in particular, it really depends on uh, the investment theme and thesis. Some CVCs, uh, like to get in early to have that startup that they invested in optimized to their problem statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them uh, like to go a little bit later stage after uh, the MVP is developed and focus particularly on commercialization. So 
I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all strategy from a CBC perspective. Definitely not like anywhere else in the startup world. So good that you've pointed it out. And it's good to know that some CBCs invest actually so early on. I personally didn't know that. So now let's talk about that uh, state-funded venture fund. So Invest Nebraska, can you tell us about a story about that fund? What's, what's that? Sure, sure. For lack of a better term, it was the uh, uh, State of Nebraska Venture Fund, which I which I started and, and, and ran for a number of years prior to coming out here to Silicon Valley. So um, many states have that. Um, last I checked, you know, 20 to, to, to 30. And really it's focused on two things, um, economic development and innovation. So let me talk a little bit about uh, the state of Nebraska and as Silicon Prairie as a whole. And I'm defining Silicon Prairie, which was essentially the geographic footprint with which I had deployed capital as North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas. So right there in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, what you have there is an economy that's heavily built on two things, obviously agriculture. And the second thing is is medical, healthcare, and biotech. So it is within that frame of which we started uh, uh, the venture capital activities of Invest Nebraska. Give you a little history. Um, generally in that particular part of the region, they don't call it flyover country for, for nothing. Um, venture capital <laughs> firms are generally investing on both coasts and they were ignoring this very, very fertile ground. They had a number of promising startups that uh, if they wanted funding, um, they would uh, uh, take the funding and immediately get drawn to Silicon Valley or or, or New York. And Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the infinite wisdom of some of the municipalities, government structures, and quite frankly, uh, family offices and financial institutions, they wanted those particular organizations to stay put and stay, quote unquote, home. So mm-hmm. is with that, uh, we started uh, Invest Nebraska, and and off we went. So uh, we originally had an investment thesis around, uh, uh, as you can imagine, biotech and ag tech, but quickly expanded to that and, and became uh, the venture capitalist uh, that had an agnostic focus, meaning that we took a look at all situations and in all sectors. So back at uh, INC, uh, we we invested in early stage companies. We participated in buyouts. We even did some mess lending, with a twofold purpose. Number one, boost up that ecosystem, train the the next generation of startup founders, infuse mm-hmm. uh, uh, an entrepreneurial spirit in in those younger people that that were uh, coming out of the local universities. And also uh, to, to return some money to the till to back to the state of Nebraska. Got it. So I was wondering, uh, this mix of government and VC uh, and the startup world is really interesting for me. I, I love it personally. So I'm curious, how is it structured in terms of financial? So what are you looking when you're sourcing your deals? What are you looking on? on the business plan when you are uh, investing from a perspective on Invest Nebraska? Are you looking for the sure. impact that the, the startup has on the specific field or what are you looking at? So important to keep in mind, 
a large a large part of the LP base were were the municipalities of, of Nebraska, so uh, the state of Nebraska, uh, Nebraska State Pension Fund, um, those type of things. There were some other people, high net worth individuals, family offices, those type of things. Um, but but sort of really focused on keeping that and keep that in mind that uh, it, it was very geographically focused. Um, in terms, I think what you're asking is. Uh, what did we invest in and, and why? <laughs> and, and, and I will tell you, um, what you have there is uh, a bunch of smart people, uh, very ingrained in the community, and uh, but uh, no access to capital. And they just because they did not have that history of access to the capital. So uh, prior to firms like Invest Nebraska or Drive Capital or Flyover Capital or Dundee, which, which are now established and investing uh, within that Silicon Prairie ecosystem, the typical funding mechanism for a startup was uh, friends and family and then traditional bank. And mm-hmm. you can imagine some of the underlying criteria that are associated with banks, they just were not getting the funding. Oh, yeah. Right? So uh, those that, that sort of rose to the top and uh, were, were essentially groundbreaking or filled that niche from a traditional venture capital perspective, um, if they happen to bubble up, they would quickly be poached. And part of taking that funding, they would require that firm to pick up and move over to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. What you're having in now, uh, and, and, I, and I'm a Silicon Valley investor, is that uh, uh, many, many VC firms are taking a harder lens to from a startup perspective and starting and maintaining a company here because of the unit economics, they're encouraging some of their portfolios to possibly move back to the Midwest. <laughs> right. That's a recent thing. And, and it's kind of interesting what's going on in the business. It's, you know, quite frankly, an engineer, software engineer here in, uh, in San Francisco is uh, significantly more than a software engineer, uh, even based in a, in a city like Chicago. Absolutely. So uh, the venture capital money goes a lot further. Right. So my next question was, who should consider? So what kind of founders should consider this, uh, basically, government-sponsored uh, venture funds? Who should try to apply? I think I think all founders should consider that. Um, you know, I like to say uh, uh, everyone's money is free. So you have uh, tier one Sandhill Road firms who are who can can participate in your round and write a check. Um, you also have those state venture funds that can participate and, and, and write a check. I think the difference is, you know, quite frankly, um, to be very transparent, is some of the follow-on capital that you can attract. We're dealing with uh, uh, a tier one Silicon Valley uh, firm on Sand Hill Road is is a little bit different. It actually means something if a, if a Kosla, a Mayfield, and Andreessen, a first round participates, as opposed to and I'm certainly not picking on those guys. There's been a lot of syndicate deals with those guys, say, a Mass Ventures or, or Invest Nebraska or the venture capital firm at Rhode Island or uh, Illinois Ventures. So uh, that's something to consider, but certainly the money's green. I would offer that uh, oftentimes with the state venture capital funds, there are other perks, i.e., um, other government agencies or uh, uh, innovation arms of the government, they often get involved in the might or, or help 
uh, in, in different ways. I've seen uh, examples where state venture capital funds have seeded companies, and uh, another org within that same government has offered them free space. Uh, I've seen them when they've offered them uh, uh, free resources in terms of uh, bringing on people, and they pay their salary for the first couple years. So uh, they should definitely consider the uh, that, that funding source as a viable option when they're trying to get their uh, startup capitalized. Absolutely. I think having the U.S. government uh, on your cap table is a pretty good good thing to have. So yeah, good point. Uh, now we're moving on to reaching out to investors. So we talked a bit about uh, corporate venture capital and you said that clearly you don't really invest in people out of the blue. You have to have some sort of relationship with them prior to investing in them. And does it work the same way with the basically government venture uh, funds or is it different? So, you know, it, I, I would say it's a little more, more of an open process from a government perspective, um, but, but, but still, um, the warm relationship is very appreciated and it leads to better outcomes. Right. So basically the approach to the investors of the um, state's venture capital is the same as approach to investors at VCs and CVCs, right? I, I think so as well, you know, um, and, and one piece of advice that I always give entrepreneurs or, or would-be entrepreneurs is that uh, as a general rule, the asset class invests in businesses, not ideas. So even before uh, we have that conversation about some of your thoughts, feelings, and what you have created, please mm -hmm. have it created, have it well thought out, um, have it vetted. Um, also, uh, there are stages in terms of the capitalization process. And depending on where uh, you are is, is where you should approach that, that capital source, that venture capital source. Um, I often tell entrepreneurs that if, you're, if your grandmother won't invest in you, why would I, a total stranger, invest in you? Go get that money, secure that capital, and have her believe in your, your vision and, and put some of her capital on risk, at, at risk and, and then approach me. It's a, much, it's a much better conversation and, once again, much better outcome. Mm -hmm. We definitely have completely different views on raising money from friends and family. I'm heavily opposed to that fundraising source, but it's it's their individual thing. I just have seen some stories that brought to really, really horrible you know, troubles in the family, and I think it's just not worth it. But but I think if you really want it, uh, it's worth worth a shot. So last thing before we move on to the last question, it's the pitch deck. Uh, it's a presentation, actually. <laughs> what are the major mistakes that you see when founders speak to you when they first make a connection on those you know, small meetups, when they just realize you're an investor, you might be the person who gives them money? What's the mistake that you see often? So, you know, uh, there's a lot of diligence, and, and we can have conversations about the investment philosophy of East Coast investors versus uh, Silicon Valley, West Coast investors and the different mentality here. Let me touch on that, and I think it would be helpful. Uh, I've invested in both ecosystems. Um, mm -hmm. I would say a uh, East Coast venture capital investor think uh, very much like a P investor and very focused on business models mm -hmm. right. and scalability. 
a West Coast investor is very focused on the tech and tech development. So that's something important to keep in mind, uh, depending on uh, which coast the venture capital firm sits is how you should approach uh, that particular firm and where you should focus. But in terms of uh, major mistakes that I, that I see that I would love to be corrected, is that as a general rule, venture capital spend an awful lot of time vetting the management team. And in vetting that management team, some of the things that, that stand out to at least me, and I think some of my colleagues as well, I, I would say the majority of my colleagues, is you know, what I want to see from a management team is a management team that's worked together before. Mm-hmm. I'd also want to see a management team that has sector expertise. Um, I would like to see that you have worked in this field that you're trying to exploit and, and, and operate in for a number of years. Uh, something that's often overlooked is I want to see adversity I w- because that really tells me that you're able to manage my cash in both good and bad times. So that's something that's really, really important. Um, the diligence that we do a management team, um, I'm a firm believer that if you have an A management team, you can overcome a B product and be successful and have that liquidity event. So, um, the advice I sort of pass down to answer your question is focus on your management team. Find the right partners. I don't want to see all tech people. Um, I also don't want to see all of the softer skill people. I'd like to have a nice mix. And, sure. and make sure you have that mix in place prior to uh, approaching me or any other uh, uh, venture capital entity. Also, um, make sure that uh, you understand how the venture capital asset class works, meaning that uh, we are truly partners. Uh, I am, <laughs> uh, no pun intended, invested in, in, in your success. <laughs> and uh, I guess the third thing is to remember is, uh, um, you know, it's probably better to own a little bit of something that's valuable than a lot of something that has no value at all. So, right. and, and that particularly goes to, to uh, areas and, and conflicts over valuation. Perfect. Just know going in that we're probably going to think your company is not as valuable as you think it is. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Probably every episode of mine, okay, like every second or third episode of mine has a question how do you evaluate your company and can we just go shortly over that with you as well so what do you think are the major metrics that you should look at while you are trying to figure out how much your company is worth so valuation is an interesting so um i will say valuation is is what someone is willing to pay i think it's like that if you're buying a car or house Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you have a list price and what someone is willing to pay in an arm length transaction so that's how i approach valuation um every venture capitalist every good venture class that i know takes the approach of valuation using comps what someone has paid in the past in a similar company so uh please do your homework uh look at potentially your competitors, uh, look at other entities that have been funded uh, within your sphere of operations, and benchmark your valuation based on their success or in some cases failure. That's mm-hmm. essentially how I'm going to determine what your, what your company is worth. Also, be flexible. 
um, there are very unique structures where you can ratchet up or, uh, or in uh, some difficult cases, ratcheting down um, uh, evaluation. But, and also obviously have, have realistic expectations. Um, uh, there, there are numerous cases, and I'm sure you've had other guests come in and say you've had uh, uh, companies with, with zero revenue but think their company's over worth more than $100 million and sort of sticking to that. So you very well might be interested in, in the management team and, and, and see that this is a promising investment and, and, and has a lot of traction. Uh, but uh, zero revenues is zero revenues, right? And, and we, have, uh, we have financial returns that, that we have to, we have to uh, uh, hit and bogeys that we have to hit. So uh, we are, are making a valuation judgment, keeping those things in mind. Right, right. And that's that's a good advice. I think looking at your competitors is probably the best advice you could give in terms of valuation. It's really it's worth taking your time to do that. So we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, and it's a call to action. What's that one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Sure. So uh, feel free to, free to reach out to me, Mark Crawford at uh, sbdinc.com. Um, you know my investment themes and thesis. Check out Stanley Ventures' website. Uh, I would say, you know, um, never give up. Um, you're going to hear a lot of no's in the venture capital asset class. Um, that's part of the business. Uh, my job is actually to say no. I look at over a thousand deals a year, and I'll, I will fund less than ten of those. Oh so I'm still comfortable with a no. Um, also, I will tell entrepreneurs be committed. And that, and that commitment is shown, and, it, and it's really, really important. Um, you can't be half in and half out. Mm -hmm. And I think the third piece of advice is, is own your pitch, own your deck. Um, my job is to, and all venture capital's job is to, is to point out potential pitfalls, um, and, and they exist. There is no perfect business plan. There is no perfect pitch deck. Uh, but, but be prepared to, to defend your stance and um, – if, if, if I push back or any venture capitalist push back on, on parts of your business model, um, please address it. But it's not an indictment. And, and, and if I know some of the risks of investing, that doesn't mean I'm not going in. There's no risk-free investment in the venture capital asset class. I just, want to, I just want to make sure we're aligned when I identify the risk, and then we can mitigate that risk together. Right, right. And that's, that's a great advice. Never give up. Uh, at this positive, you know, no, we'll wrap it up. Thanks a lot, Mark, for coming up. You definitely met my high expectations. There was definitely a lot of new, interesting stuff said in this episode. So thanks a lot for that. And stay safe. Hey, you too. Take it easy.